In the 18th century, 1700s, early 1700s, the American Puritan pastor, Cotton Mather, was instrumental in developing what would later turn out to be a vaccine against smallpox disease in America in those days. And of course, with Mather and in his day, there have always been naysayers to vaccines. In fact, in fact, his opponent said that smallpox was God's divine judgment on the people. And they went further and they quoted Job chapter 2 verse 7 in support of this notion that smallpox is God's divine judgment on the people. And of course they quoted it in the King James Version and it says this, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Now the point of this opening is not to make any sort of comment on vaccines. (laughs) I know if I did that, I would be run out of here faster, as they say, than a duck on a June bug. My point is that Mather's opponents attributed the disease of smallpox to God's divine judgment for their sins, as punishment for their sins. It's exactly what Job's friends did to Job. So I want you to turn there with me to the book of Job, Job chapter 4. Let's just open to Job chapter 4. And we're going to look at several passages this morning. We're not going to just be in chapter 4. We're really going to look at several passages from chapters 4 all the way through chapters 27. And these chapters are the long discussion between Job's three friends and Job, and it's sort of this back and forth between all four of them. Now, as we dive into this, we do not know if Job was suffering from smallpox disease. It's hard to know that. That's unknown to us. But what we do know is that Job suffered a great deal. This man... This man lost everything but his life. And his interlocutors, these so-called friends, attributed his suffering to God's punishment for his sins. That's their solution to why Job was suffering. Essentially, the proposed solution that these friends give is just that, that Job was suffering because Job had sinned. And their basic argument went like this. This was their reasoning behind what they said. What they said is that God is just. God is fair. 
He's just and fair in all that he does. And because God is just and fair in all that he does, God must punish sin. God is just, God is fair, therefore he must punish sin. And then they brought it home to Job and they said, Job, because you are suffering, you must have sinned in some way. That's basically what they are saying to Job for why he was suffering. And as we said last time, there is truth. There is truth to what these friends are suggesting. God is righteous. God is just. God will punish sins. The problem, though, with the friends is that the answer was true, but it was not true for Job. The Bible makes clear throughout the book of Job that there is no specific sin that resulted in Job's suffering. And because the friends said Job had sinned in some way, that was their solution to why he was suffering. Because they said that, what do you think their counsel to him was? What do you think they wanted him to do? They wanted him to repent. Confess your sins to the Lord. Mend your ways, Job. Look at what they say to him in chapter 8, verse 4. Look at it with me. Chapter 8, verse 4. So here's Bildad, and he says, If, which is probably better translated since. So let me read it that way. Since your sons sinned against him, against God, then he, then the Lord delivered them into the power of their transgression. What's he saying? They sinned and they were punished with death because of their sin. Now look at verse 5. Look what he says to Job. If you would seek God... And implore the compassion of the Almighty. If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. You see what they're saying? They're saying, Job, turn to God now and you will be restored. Turn to God and live righteously. Job, however, is not convinced. He will have nothing with their solutions or their counsel. For him, the counsel of his friends is unhelpful and it's worthless. Absolutely worthless. Look what Job says in chapter 16. Turn over a few chapters to Job chapter 16. Job 16, verse 1. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. You see, Job feels like he cannot win. If he tries to defend himself of wrongdoing, 
of sinning. If he tries to make a defense, he just gets hammered by his friends. No, you have sinned, Job. And if he doesn't defend himself, he just suffers. And he suffers under the weight of his friend's counsel. Look at verse 6 of chapter 16. Verse 6 of chapter 16. He says, if I speak, and the implication is, if I speak and defend myself, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold back, if I don't defend myself, what has left me? I still suffer. He, he can't win. He's in this pickle with these friends. Job knows. He knows he is not suffering because he sinned. Look what he says in chapter 9. So jump with me back to chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 21. Look what he says. He knows he hasn't sinned. He says, I am guiltless. It's not guilty. I do not take notice myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. See what he's saying? He's saying it's not the blameless who do not suffer. It's not just the wicked who suffer. No, the blameless suffer as well. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. You see, Job's friends, their counsel missed the mark. Their counsel missed the mark. Fundamentally, the problem with Job's friends, in my mind, is that they had no category for a sufferer. Job's friends had no category for a sufferer. Yes, they knew Job was a saint. They knew Job was a sinner. But here's the key. It is precisely because of his sin that he is suffering. As I said last time, Job's friends had no category for innocent suffering. That is, suffering that is not tied to specific sins that have been done. And because they have no category for an innocent sufferer, in their theology, in their view, in their understanding, what do you think this led them to do? This led them to give wrong counsel to Job in their practice. Here's where their counsel went wrong. Two ways it went wrong. Number one, they show no compassion or sympathy toward Job. None. What Job's friends are interested in is winning an argument. 
Read it. Read it and read what his friends say to him. They are more interested in giving a lecture than loving a man broken from suffering. They are more interested in being right than ministering to a man in his pain. In fact, look at this in chapter 4. This is Eliphaz. This is right after Job just laments his suffering. And look what he says. Chapter 4, verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, Job, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you. And you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. In other words, Job, you have helped others in their suffering, but now it has come to you and you can't help yourself. Why can't you fix yourself, Job? This is not something you want to say to someone who is suffering. Get your act together, man. Not something you want to say to someone who is suffering. It reminds me of a story I read. A woman once came to her pastor and she was suffering with severe chronic illness. And after listening for a few moments, her pastor sort of stopped her in her tracks. And he began then to offer to her what he considered to be biblically right theological statements. They were. And after his, what I could call a diatribe, she said to him, I didn't come to you because I expected you had answers. I simply wanted you to listen. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. Ministering to sufferers. Ministering to people who are hurting and broken requires compassion and care. It's not about winning debates are proving you're right. It's where the friends' counsel went wrong. And second, related to the first, Job's friends, this is really the bottom of it, Job's friends feel superior to him. They feel like they have a notch up on him. Look what Zophar says in chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 12. Look at at that. Chapter 11, verse 12. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. What are they suggesting? They're suggesting Job is an idiot. (laughs) Job, you're an idiot. 
And in Job chapter 5, Eliphaz basically says this. You know what, Job? If I were you, oh, righteous me, if I were you, this is what I'd do. Look at it with me. Turn back to chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. Eliphaz says, but as for me, I would seek God. And I would place my cause before God. Now the problem with this advice is that people who are suffering, people who are suffering are seldom able to hear such an attitude of superiority, no matter how right you or I may be. Job's friends in many ways were right, but they were in many ways, wrong. You see, Job's friends ultimately lack, they ultimately lack the humility needed to care for him. It reminds me of something I once heard James Dobson say. Dobson once said this, I used to have four theories on child rearing and no kids. Now I have four kids and no theories. (laughs) He learned humility through his suffering. (laughs) Job, you see, Job lost everything. He lost his family. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. He had enough suffering with that. But the friends, as it sometimes is, we know this, and we've been the ones doing it, added to his suffering. His friends added to his suffering. So we can learn from this. The Bible is given for our learning, for our instruction, for our example. How do we, how should we respond to someone who is suffering? Job's friends are certainly a lesson in what not to do. So how can we then help someone who is suffering? Well, let me start with this. This is, this is fundamental. This is key. The Bible presents the Christian in a threefold state or perspective. And those states, those, that perspective is that of a saint, that of a sinner, and that of a sufferer. Now, the Bible is absolutely full of this framework, but I want to just give you one place where we can find this. So I want you to hold your finger in the book of Job, and I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we see these three categories on display. Romans 6, actually in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So look with me in Romans 6. The Bible here pictures the Christian as a saint. 
It's what this chapter is about. Look with me at Romans 6, verse 6. Paul says, Christian, know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, what Paul is saying is here is, Christian, you are now a saint. You are righteous in God's sight. You are free from sin. You have been definitively sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are a saint. But as saints, we still sin. And Paul attested this in Romans chapter 7. So look at Romans chapter 7, verse 18. You know these words well. Paul says, For I know nothing. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Even though Paul is a saint, he struggles with sin. Even though we are saints, we, we have this identity, this new identity, this new position in Christ. We're saints, we're righteous, we're forgiven, yet we struggle with sin. And then... As Paul goes on, he's making this argument in Romans, and he goes on in chapter 8. Look what he says in chapter 8, verse 18. He says in verse 18 that the sufferings, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is he saying? He's saying we have suffering now in this life but it's not going to compare with the glory that is to come. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation, including human beings, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So you can turn back to Job. In Romans chapter 6, we are saints. In Romans chapter 7, we are sufferers, sinners. And in Romans chapter 8, we are sufferers. And that's just one place where we see this in the Bible. We see this truth that Christians are saints, they are sinners, and they are sufferers all at the same time. So in order to offer counsel to people, whether you do that formally, not many of us do here, or whether most of us do it informally, We have to recognize this biblical framework of the Christian life. In other words, what I'm saying is is you must have a category 
in your theology, in your thinking, which is going to work itself in what you say to people, you must have this category of an innocent sufferer in your counsel to those who are suffering. Not everything fits into the category of saint or of sinner. Let me put it like this. Sometimes you suffer and it's not because you have done wrong. Sometimes you suffer and it's not it's not that God is trying to teach you a lesson. Sort of want to look for the lesson I'm supposed to learn from this suffering. Sometimes you suffer, and it's not that God is letting your past come back to haunt you. You and I live in a broken world with suffering everywhere, and we just suffer. And I, I'm, I'm making this argument today that we need to have these three perspectives in view. Saint, sinner, and suffer, especially in a church like ours. I love our church. If I could, if I could say this humbly, and I'm, I'm being humbly, I think we get the gospel and doctrine right But in a church that cares deeply about doctrine and expository preaching, we can so easily miss the category of sufferer. And as a result, we can be just like Job's friends and have no sympathy and compassion for those suffering, even those who are suffering as a result of their own sins which sometimes is why we suffer. Not all the times, but sometimes it is. We can tend to offer theological diatribes and statements, but not care about the person. And listen, I know this is true for me. And if it's true for me, I know it's true for you because birds of a feather, the same feather flock together. That's how it works. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Dan, Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're, you're preaching to the counselors here. I'm not a counselor. In fact, I'm deathly afraid of counseling. <laughs> it's not where I want to go. Nope, not signing up for that. Let me just say, if you have a pulse, you are a counselor. Why do I say that? Because every one of us here has relationships with a spouse, with children, Parents, with colleagues, with neighbors, with church members. We all have influence on someone. As Christians, we are disciple-making disciples. As Paul Tripp puts it, and I love this, we are people in need of change, helping people in need of change. That's who we are as Christians. And just to make clear and concrete, here's what I'm saying about suffering. Let me give you four categories 
for examples of suffering. Number one, you're a Christian, but you are married to an unbeliever. That is a form of suffering. Number two, you are dealing with cancer. Obviously, that is a form of suffering. Number three, you're in a relationship that is emotionally abusive. That is a form of suffering. Number four, you lost your job. Now, each of these examples that I've given are categories of suffering. We could call them relational, physical, emotional, and financial. Christians suffer in these ways as saints and as sinners. And they're dealing with these four categories of suffering in in that way, as saints and as sinners. They are sufferers. So if every Christian is simultaneously a saint, a sinner, and a sufferer, the Reformation brought us Satan sinner. We're adding sufferer to this. If every Christian is a saint, a sinner, and sufferer, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think what it means, at least at the very basic level, is that it is extremely difficult to sort of tease out what part of a person's life in which he or she is being a saint, in which he or she is being a sinner, and in which he or she is being a sufferer. Let me give you an example. John had been a believer for 15 years. And John became a saint in the moment that he became a believer. Sainthood is not something that is achieved in life through miracles or good works. Recently, however, I learned that John's wife betrayed him and left him for another man. John is devastated. Absolutely devastated. And so what did he do? He turned to drinking to escape the pain. What would he do? Every day after work, he would find himself at the bar drinking his troubles away. And John became aloof. He became alone. And he sank into deep depression. John is a saint. He is a sinner and he is a sufferer. How is he a sufferer? In this case, his wife betrayed him and left him. Now, what can we observe from this example? I want to offer two things that we can observe. First, John is all three saint, sinner, and sufferer all at the same time. He is. He doesn't sort of lose sainthood when he goes to drinking. He's still a saint. He's still a child of God. So in your counsel, you cannot neglect one of the categories for the other two. 
Why do I say this? Because what happens when we neglect the other two? Well, here's what can happen when we neglect one of these categories. And I've really been helped here by the Christian counselor Mike Emlett, who wrote a very little helpful book on these ideas. You see, when we overemphasize, when you overemphasize the experience of a saint, this is so helpful. When you overemphasize the experience of a saint, you can tend to focus on what needs to be, um, excuse me, you can, you can tend to minimize or downplay wrongdoing, responsibility, and progressive growth in holiness. So, so you're emphasizing sainthood. I'm a child of God. And so it, it, what can happen is you can tend to minimize, you can downplay wrongdoing, responsibility, and, and, and our, our command, our, our, our aim as Christians to grow in Christ-likeness. In John's case, this might be giving John a pass on his drinking problem because after all, look at what happened to him. Give him a break. Just what, what could happen? When you overemphasize the experience of a sinner, think about John, you're overemphasizing the experience of a sinner, you can tend to focus on what needs to change at the expense of seeing all that God has done for you. All that he has done for John. Or... Or what sometimes happens is you can, and I can, and I've done this, we focus on law-keeping rules and commands rather than our heart and our relationship with Christ. In John's case, this might be lecturing John why drunkenness is a sin and make a list of rules that John must avoid. Things that John must avoid to do, he must do to avoid drinking. Or, when you overemphasize the experience of a sufferer, you can tend to have a victim mentality, trying to escape suffering through ungodly means, unbiblical means. In John's case, he has the right to be depressed, angry, and drink because his wife left him. Look how he is suffering. So, simultaneously, all three at the same time. Do not neglect one for the other. Second, the second thing I want to point out is that even though John is a saint and a sinner, it might be his suffering that is predominant in his life. So, as you are friends with John, as you know John, as you walk with him in this pain, as much as you can tell, John's wife's betrayal is not the result of a specific sin that John had done on his part. The man is an innocent sufferer. He is a Job-like sufferer, we could say. And that may be the case. So while John is all three at the same time, one at certain points in John's life might be predominant. You might come to see that it is this idea that John is suffering, and that might be what is predominant in his life. 
So if that is the case, and you come to realize that about someone, how can you specifically help someone who is suffering? We're not going to focus now on a person as a saint or as a sinner. We want to focus on a person as a sufferer. How can you help someone who is suffering, and their suffering is Job-like? It's not tied to any specific sin that they have done. Let me give you several things that I want you to take away. You can write these down. This is wisdom and experience again of Mike Emlett. So here are some questions you can ask of a friend, of a loved one who is suffering. We all know someone in that boat. Number one, what significant situational stressors are they currently facing in their life? Physical, their health, their relationships, financial, cultural, societal, relationship pressures that they are facing. Number two, what are the significant shaping events in their life? What has shaped them? What has formed them as a person? You just want to answer that in your mind as you're trying to help your friend. Number three, how have they been sinned against? How have they been sinned against if they have? In John's case, in our example, John clearly had. And number four, how are they experiencing their problems, their suffering? How are they dealing with it? How are they dealing with it? So those are questions to ask. Now let me give you some things to consider as you help a person who is suffering. Number one, and I think we draw these from the book of Job. Again, given for our instruction. Number one, this is not what the friends do, but take the suffering of others very seriously. Take other suffering very seriously. And number two, related to that, as you take it seriously, work hard. Work hard to understand the details of their suffering. What do I mean by that? I mean be present with them and listen. Listen well to them. Listen well. And number three, related to that, related to listening well, which we all need work on, is don't presume you know the reasons for their suffering. Don't be like Job's friends. They just presumed. Job, you must have sinned in some way. Number four, give the person who is suffering, and this is, this is true no matter what, but especially for those who are suffering, give them tons of encouragement and hope. Biblical encouragement and hope. Give it to them in fire hoses, <laughs> fire hose shots. Just give them tons of it. And number five, many more things we could say, but I'd just say pray with them. Pray for them. Pray with them and, and pray for them. Now, all of this counsel, all of this counsel that we give others, whether formally, right, or informally, it's not done in a vacuum, is it? It's not done in a vacuum. How is it done? It is done in light of Jesus and his cross. It always is. 
And so this message today would not be complete without pointing out the fact that our Lord Jesus, of which the book of Job points to, this book is just a shadow of, it's a pointer to Jesus. Job is a type. And what does the book of Job point to? It points to the fact that our Lord, our Lord Jesus is the ultimate saint. He is the ultimate sinner. And he is the ultimate sufferer. Now let me explain to you what I mean by what I just said. Jesus, first of all, is the ultimate saint. We, we know this. He is declared over and over in Scripture as the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. And not only is that his person, but his life is marked by sainthood, we could say. He kept the law of God perfectly. He obeyed his Father even at great cost to himself. If there ever was a saint, if there ever was a saint, it was and is Jesus. Not only is Jesus the ultimate saint, Jesus is the ultimate sinner. And I, and I want to use this term sinner in quotes. You see, Jesus did not experience sin in the same way we do. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Jesus, however, did become sin. He did become sin for us on the cross. Christ, or Paul is clear about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. In this way, in this way, all the sins of God's people were placed on Christ. He became the cursed, the sin curse on the tree, on the cross. See, Jesus never personally sinned. He never personally committed any wrong. No deceit was found in his mouth. But in the wisdom of God, he became sin. He felt the full weight of the wrath of God against sin in his body on the cross. And in this way, he was the ultimate sinner because Billions upon billions of sins were placed upon him. In that way, he is the ultimate sinner. And Jesus is not only the ultimate saint and sinner, he is the ultimate sufferer. He entered a broken world. He suffered just like we all do from day one of his earthly existence as the God-man. And this is, this is why Isaiah pictures Jesus. Do you remember how he pictures Jesus in Isaiah 52 and 53? He pictures him as what? The suffering servant. That's who Jesus is. He's the suffering servant. Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, men who suffer. And the writer to Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. 
He is the ultimate sufferer because he had everything and he left everything to become nothing, to suffer for you and me. So what does this all mean, brothers and sisters, as I close? All this means that in your suffering, in your pain, whether it's physical or relational or emotional or financial, whatever suffering you're going through, you can turn to the one who knew suffering and suffered in your place. This is why I love what the writer to Hebrews says, that Jesus is not an unsympathetic high priest. He's not unsympathetic like the friends were to Job. In the face of the friends, his Friends, show no sympathy. But when you go to Jesus, he's not going to act like that. He will sympathize with you. His heart is for the saint, sinner, and sufferer, as we're learning in our grace groups from the book Gentle and Lowly. That's who Jesus is. His heart is for the sinner, the saint, and the sufferer. And it also means that because Jesus suffered, you can as a Christian, offer counsel. You can offer advice. You can say words of comfort to loved ones in the face of their suffering. This is the wisdom that the book of Job ultimately affords us. In view of Jesus, view others as saints, as sinners, and as sufferers, and give them Care and love in light of who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray to that end.